Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is your host, Mike. I need to apologize. In the first 20 minutes of this interview, there's a little bit of static. However, we figured out the problem and the vast majority of the interview is static free. I apologize for this technical difficulty. Um, Other than that, this is a fantastic interview. Pavan is truly a fascinating character and his work is really important. I'm sure you're gonna enjoy this. Thank you. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. There are many Orientalist stereotypes about Thailand. Known as the land of smiles to foreign tourists, uh, they often comment on the calm and pleasant demeanor of a people seemingly adverse to conflict. However, these are superficial remarks coming from observers or visitors who fail to understand the country's language, culture, and deep social, cultural, and political tensions. Since the bloodless end of the absolute monarchy in 1932, there have been a dozen successful coups and a few more unsuccessful efforts and the spilling of blood. From the Cold War to well into the 21st century, Thailand has wavered between democracy but more frequently military rule, with the Chakri dynasty's kings ruling over this political pendulum. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Pavan Chakchawal Pongpong, Uh, about his edited volume, Ku King Crisis, a critical interregnum in Thailand, out in 2021 with Yale University's Southeast Asia Studies. This collection of 14 essays by a variety of scholars focuses on the coup of 2014 and the complex relationship between the monarchy, the military, and democracy. The volume does an excellent job of giving the larger context to Thai politics. Pavan? A native of Bangkok, studied at Chulalongkorn University before earning his doctorate at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. He then served the Thai government as a diplomat in the Thai Ministry of Foreign Affairs for 13 years. Currently, he is associate professor at Kyoto University's Center for Southeast Asian Studies. There, he edits the Kyoto Review of Southeast Asian Studies. Pavan is arguably the world's most internationally prominent. Thai dissident, penning critiques of the Thai junta for the world's leading newspapers. He is the author or editor of a number of books on Thai politics. Pavan, welcome to New Books on History. Hi. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So it's a real honor to speak to you. I've been following your work for years. And and again, you are a really prominent figure uh, in terms of uh, uh, critiques of the, the Thai government. But before we get going and before we get into the book itself, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you go from doctoral student to diplomat to scholar in exile? Well, that's quite an adventure, I must say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started off with being a diplomat right, right at the beginning, after I graduated from Chulalongkorn University. So I went into the foreign service in... Straight after uh, your undergraduate, you went in. Yes, yeah. straight, straight away uh, in 1990. Uh, 
1994. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I became a diplomat in 1994, serving in Bangkok at the headquarters for about two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I was dispatched to the Thai embassy in Tokyo mm-hmm. uh, to help out with uh, the embassy affair, as well as to take certain courses in Japan. Uh, after that, uh, I went straight to London to, uh, to do my MPhil and also PhD. I graduated from SOAS in 2002, and because of that, I went back uh, to the foreign service to continue. Oh, so you, did, you did foreign service before yeah. and after your doctorate? Before, and because of that, I mean, I, I have to sign sort of a, a contract with, with the foreign mm. ministry, yeah. even though I got scholarship from the British government. So, I mean, the system is a bit too complex to explain. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I had to, to return to work uh, at the foreign ministry and then stay in Bangkok for a little while. I went to my first and last posting in Singapore. So I served as the first secretary at the Thai embassy. I would say properly, Royal Thai Embassy mm. uh, in Singapore for four years, during which time so many things uh, had happened. Yeah, what, what, so what years were those four years? 2003, late 2003 until uh, late 2007. Oh, okay. So the, the, the coup is Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that, that I could say that that was a big turning point in my life and that mm. sort of responsible for a decision to resign from the foreign ministry. So you didn't, you didn't intend to become an academic. You were going to be a diplomat. I must say that, yes, at the, at the beginning, I don't think I wanted to move over to, to the academia. Uh, but now that, you know, I had my PhD, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I felt that this is not to press anyone with PhD, including myself. <laughs> I, I think, I think it become, uh, it become, uh, over, I, I, I became overqualified mm-hmm. for the routine job at the foreign ministry. And I felt this more and more, especially when the coup took place in 2006. And we were instructed, you know, to inform the host country, in my case, Singapore, of the, the, the reason why the coup had to happen. And, you know, this basically went against, uh, my belief as a Thai people. Mm-hmm. Also, including, you know, my knowledge, uh, right. from, from my study as I look back to, uh, the problem and history of Thai politics. So. So yeah, yeah so I, you, as, as a diplomat, you had to explain the coup and sell the coup to yes, yes, exactly. to other ASEAN states and to Singapore. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, to to put it in 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 a proper context, I had to legitimize the military right. coup as we were instructed by the foreign ministry. I mean, but 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 this is normal anyway, Mike, because uh, if, even if you if, even if you were British diplomat, American diplomat, you know, you had to follow uh, the guideline from the government. Right, right, right. But uh, I mean, it's it's one thing to go through a uh, a democratic uh, administrative uh, transition, and another to go through a coup. Yeah, but but I mean, toward the end, if you if you don't mind me adding a little yeah. bit, I mean, toward the end, it 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 started becoming a conflict of interest because because I I I was not sure whether I should resign from the foreign ministry. Mm-hmm. My family they would they really wanted to see me becoming ambassador, you know, at yeah. the end of the road. But at the same time, I became so frustrated. So I did that. I did two things at the same time. Starting to write article for newspaper, both inside and outside of Thailand, being very critical at first, uh, against the government. That already a sort of conflict of interest. 
you're supposed to work for right. the government, and then you start to criticize. And then toward to toward the really early end of my diplomat career, I started to criticize the monarchy. That is something that 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 was unacceptable, you know, yeah. uh, they, from from the, from the viewpoint of the foreign ministry. Yeah, so they, in many ways, I was obliged, you know, to resign. That's that's simply too far. So so if yep. at, at that point you you make the transition from being a diplomat into being a scholar, but you're not going to be able to get a job in Thailand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what did you do? Well, I mean, one of one of my responsibilities at the embassy because the headquarters sort of understood that I was keen on academic work, so they they give me this this assignment of attending a lot of you know academic seminar in Singapore, and we know that Singapore is sort of a listening post. You know, there's so many academic uh activities there and they want they they put me in that position so that i could attend a lot of seminars in order to write a report on what really going on in singapore in southeast asia and send back to the headquarters so that it could be distributed to our embassy around the world to right. see oh my god what are they going on in singapore i mean and because of that i got to know a lot of research institute of singapore and that that's when I got a new job yeah. <laughs> through my through my connection. Uh, to cut long story short, after foreign ministry, then I moved to the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies uh, in Singapore, and I had remained there from uh, beginning of two thousand and eight until two thousand and twelve. Mm -hmm. And then it was on to Kyoto. Yes, because again the pressure coming from Singapore government. Ah, did you did you feel sort of you were at a, a dead end? Uh, oh yeah, def definitely in, Sing in Singapore. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because as as I now uh taste you know the freedom, the freedom that I never had in the foreign mm. ministry. So it it drove me you know to to write more and more and more. And the more I the more I learned about Thai politics, the more I became very critical. Especially now that I felt I was free to 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 criticize the royal institution in Thailand. Mm -hmm. And at first, I thought that you would be safe as long as you do not criticize the Singapore government. It is untrue because, you know, Singapore play this game, diplomatic game of trying to please, you know, uh, its neighboring country, especially in ASEAN, by you know not wanting any critical elements, you know, in the educational system of Singapore. So toward the end of my stay, around 2011, 2010, 11, I started to run into problem with my office. You know, every now and then I would be called into the director room and then I would be scolded that, you know, I think you talk too much about this issue. I think you might have to tone down. I think you might upset the Thai government and you put me in a very difficult position. It's happened too often, too yeah, many times. Yeah. And I realized that maybe Singapore is not a place for me. And then in Kyoto, you have more freedom, more intellectual freedom, academic freedom. Oh yeah, I mean, I moved there 2012. Uh, this is a place I used to stay before. I'm, I'm not saying that I love Japan <laughs> that much, to be honest. Uh, but but I'm, I'm grateful, especially uh, when it comes to economic freedom. And I must say, you know, through my experiences, you know, working in Southeast Asia, being a student in London, and also you know, being a fellow in all over the places, or including in in, in the United States. I have to say that Japan gave me 200% of economic freedom. Yeah. Even during the worst time in my life, you know, after the coup of 2014, when I became a refugee, Japan would never come to me and ask me to tone down 
to do something else. Don't talk about the Thai monarchy. No, they would never say it. Not even once. Yeah. So I mean, you you just just describe yourself as a refugee. I mean, with the 2014 coup, uh, did you lose your passport? Did you what what did, what were the implications for you being a, a critic outside of Thailand at that point? Sure. I mean, the coup of 2014 was uh was plotted. You know, I don't think you know this is this has been my main argument. It 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 did not just happen uh in order to respond to to the Yingluck government. We can talk into more detail later, you know, if the if, if the listener would not understand that much. But what I'm saying is what, what I'm trying to say is that there's cert, there are a lot of events leading up to 2014. Uh so myself and other people, we have long been monitored. So they used 2014 coup as an excuse to punish us. So again, this is not something spontaneous, right? Uh, and, and also because of my long year of being, you know, the, the, the vocal uh, critic you know, of the monarchy. So after the coup on the 22nd of May, uh, two days later, I found my name in the list of people uh, who were called to Bangkok to have attitude adjusted. So they call this uh, process attitude adjustment. Hmm. Uh, I was I was very angry, uh, but again at that point I thought no this could not be this could not be real. What else you could do to me, you know? Because I am living here in Japan. Oh my God, I was so wrong to think to think in, in such a way because they could do a lot more to me. When I rejected the call, I even made fun of them. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry, you mm-hmm. have to say this uh, because I have I have a little little pet dog, you know, a chihuahua, and. He became a celebrity, in fact. So I just wrote on my Facebook that, Dear General, thank you so much for the invitation. But I could not really go to Bangkok because I am in, in the middle of, of the semester. But may I send my Chihuahua to represent me in Bangkok? Oh my God, you know, it, it, drove, me, it drove them so mad. With, especially with the Thai Junta, you know, they don't want to be a joke. So because of that, a week later came... Second summon, again, I rejected. I rejected it. Then two weeks later, it came with an arrest warrant for yeah. criminal case. Then I start to realize, oops, this is no longer a joke. This is real. And then the beginning of July, they revoked my passport. That's it. That is the end of the road for me. Then I realized that uh, I became, I have, I have to become a refugee in order to protect myself. So immediately, uh, beginning of July, I applied for a refugee status with the Japanese government, and I have been re- refugee since 2014 until now. So I have no no Thai passport. No, and when, when's the last time you've been back to Thailand? Two weeks before the coup. Okay, so two weeks before. So, mm. Yep. Well, um, this plays all of this. Your personal history here plays into the history of this book, Coup King Crisis: Critical Interregnum in Thailand. Um, and uh, people who've been following the Southeast Asian and Asian studies email lists um, may know about this, but there's a bit of uh, an affair, as they would say in France, a bit of a scandal around this book and the publication of the book. Um, NUS, National University of Singapore Press, was set to publish it. As I understand it, you were very far along, really sort of at the 11th hour. Suddenly, NUS said, no, we're, we are not going to publish it. 
Um, could you tell us about this uh, affair? Well, yeah, I proposed an Alman manuscript uh, edited volume you know, by 14 uh, contributors. Uh, and anyone who work on uh, Thai studies, they must, they must be family, familiar with the names of the contributor because yeah. the big names are here. The big names. Yeah, big name, big name. And what 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 I wanted to say is that you know if you're talking about sorry to use this diplomatic term, clam de la clam, you know, you know <laughs> so you can find them in this volume. Why I say this because I just want to say that this manuscript is this manuscript is of high quality. So yes. there would be no dispute, you know, on the uh, on the academic merit of and it, this and it had been peer reviewed. Oh yeah, vigorous yeah. peer reviewed. Yeah. yeah, and we passed the peer review with only, you know, obviously with minor revision, you know, as always, we come across that, you know, in, in this kind of process. So, okay, I proposed this manuscript in August 2018. It took us about a year, you know, to went through the peer review and also to revise. And then I did everything I could to meet the guidelines, including up, updating the manuscript right until the last minute. Because... That was, I mean, we went through the, the, the election in Thailand as well in 2019. And, and uh, NUS press editor felt that this book would, would be outdated so soon had I not include, included the, the election. So again, I comply with the request and I, I agree with that. August 2019, I signed the contract. After August 2019, then we started to, to work on the typeset thing. Then the design of the book, the ISBN. Uh, was issued then the advertisement was already went already went on on the uh on the website yeah, and it was listed on amazon with still there and it's still, still there, there too mm-hmm. yeah uh but of course it's the link has become inactive but the link nonetheless still there one day i got a phone call uh from uh the editor the shopper saying that oops you know there could be some kind of pressure so I will get back to you in the next few days. There could be a decision to withdraw your planned publication. Oh my God, you know, I was shocked. And then uh, that phone call actually came a few days later to confirm the bad news without giving me any explanation, only to say that there could be some kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I, 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 I was totally lost. I was lost. Because, I mean, this manuscript, we have been working really hard. And then, oh my God, what are I going to do? Anyway, to cut long story short again, you know, through our, through our friends, you know, in the United States, we managed to get through Yale University at the Southeast Asian Study Program. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we started to talk about this possibility. Uh, we, have to, we had to go through a mini uh, peer review process once again. And then... The book came out uh, first week of January, and since uh, I started the campaign against NUS Press, right. the reason the reason I had to wait for so long because I just want to make sure that uh, the book has to be out first before I, I started to do anything. Because if I start to do anything and it could once again affect, you know, the the publication, the planned publication with Yale, then it would be another another devastation. So I just want it to come out, and then the campaign was launched. So, so tell us about the campaign. Uh, I have been discussing with a number of uh, professors. The best way to do is not to boycott NUS Press. So basically, in, in, in terms of, I mean, uh, boycotting, it could mean not buying their book, 
you know, uh, refusing to have anything to do with NUS. No, we do not want to do it like that. Yeah. Yeah, that, could, that, could, that could inadvertently hurt yeah. the number of scholars that you would want to support, especially Definitely. junior scholars, right? Yeah, you are right, Mike. Yeah, this, this is basically the, the bottom line. We do not want to hurt other academics, especially younger ones in Southeast Asia. Uh, so we issue a moratorium, meaning that you know we will not review any book or manuscript for consider, consider, consideration of publication at NBS Press. Uh, and we will not submit new manuscript with NBS Press as well. So I wrote an email to about 230 scholars, predominantly in the Thai studies, but including other, you know, in the Southeast Asian studies. And the number that uh, turned back to me was not bad. We had 111 scholars joining this campaign. And simultaneously, we also launched an online petition to change.org. Uh, and, and, and seriously, our request, I mean, I, I, I could say it's quite humble. Mm -hmm. The humble request is that because they talk so much about stakeholders in the in the statement of NUS press saying quite clearly that the, 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 the last minute decision was influenced by stakeholders, but and they put a full stop right there. Our request is humble. Just tell us who the stakeholders are. Because this would create a transparency, you know, in, in the publication review process. Right. So that this would set a new standard, you know, so that we know what really going on. Yeah, but, and but, then, but, you, one, but you, I mean, you know who the stakeholders are, right? But then they have to say it, yeah. you know, it's not us to say it, right? If they say it, then yeah, the moratorium could be lifted. That's it. Yeah. But That's I have not, I have not got any response back from NUS since the campaign. Has there been any statement from the Thai government? No. Uh, this thing will be tricky, Mike, because mm. asking me, you know, whether the, 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 the decision really comes straight from the Thai government might be not. Knowing Singapore quite well, this could become, this could, this could have been a preemptive measure on the part of Singapore. Right, right. If you know what I'm, what I'm saying. Right. So, uh, so, uh, like a sort of almost a national self-censorship in order yeah. to uh, facilitate relations between Singapore and Thailand. What really disturbed me the most is that if you have that position, you you could have you could have told us right at the beginning that I'm sorry, but we are not, you know, we are not considering your manuscript. Right. But then you know you you so we went all the way until the very end, and to be dropped at the last minute. I mean, this is very unacceptable. And, and and sure, there should be no surprise there. You, you are the editor. You are a known entity. You are very public, uh, intellectual, internationally. Um, the title of the book is Ku King Crisis. It's clearly going to be somewhat critical. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, that 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 sort of very last minute um, reversal is really really shocking. Yes. And you've you've previously edited a book on the um, the two thousand six coup, correct? Yeah, because yeah. my life, my life just you know, uh, uh, revolve around the coup in Thailand and the monarchy. Yes, you're right. In two thousand, uh, uh, I mean the book came out in two thousand and fourteen, but that book was about the coup of two thousand and six. Right. Whereas the current book is about the coup of two thousand and fourteen. Right. I'm right. so sorry for for the listener here, but you know, <laughs> in Thailand, 
things are like this. You know, we 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 have to talk about so many cool. Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I'm an American, and we're getting used to that this week. <laughs> although I feel for, I feel for you. I, although I, for you. I, I I saw a funny t- uh, text message that someone had uh, posted on uh, on Twitter from a Thai friend uh, uh, telling their their American friend that they really weren't very good at coups. <laughs> they, could, they could do a better job. <laughs> well, I mean, you you can do a study tour in Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Right. I'm sure the incoming administration would love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean that 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 book that you mentioned also. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk about 2006 coup, but I have to say that when it comes to uh to put the monarchy in focus, uh the latest coup, uh, sorry, the latest book. Uh, we discuss more on that, and also because the role of the monarchy, you know, in the past decade has become much more visible. So it it gives us sort of good material yes. uh, to talk yes. about the role of the monarchy. I mean, anyone who study Thai politics and then you know not talking about the monarchy, you basically would would not understand the development back in Thailand at all. Well, hey, this feeds right into my next question. You're you're a joy to interview. You make this so easy for me. So tell us about uh, Thai politics. And um, what what I would suggest is that we go through some of the the key players and institutions. Uh, if we could talk about the king, the army, um, the political parties, Toxin. Um, but start, let's start off. Tell us tell us what is what is the role of the king and of of the monarchy in contemporary Thai politics. Well, I mean, this is such a big question, and I think you know, to do a complete job, you might have to give me two days. You know? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give I'll give you four minutes. <laughs> no problem. Well, I mean, uh, you you introduced right at the beginning uh, about the the abolition of absolute monarchy in 1932. Uh, we have to say that right after the uh, the 1932 uh, revolution, we saw the declining power of the of the monarchy. So at once, uh, for one, we thought that. This is it. This would be really the end of the royal institution in Thailand. Uh, but again, the, 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 the People's Party, basically the, the group of uh, military and also intellectuals uh, who formed this uh, revolution uh, group, uh, they also have been very unsuccessful in strengthening democratic institutions in Thailand. In the, so in the 1930s. Thailand, yeah. In the 1930s. Yeah. So that's why we came to the dilemma here. You know, we have on the one hand declining uh, monarchy, but on the other hand, there, there should be more opportunity for democratic institution to be strengthened. But again, we fail. I mean, it could come down to sort of in, uh, internal fighting among uh, the the People's Party as well, mm-hmm. right? So in some way, this started to open up another, another a new opportunity for the king to revive the institution. Right. But right? when so, so so when when the previous king Rama the Ninth came to power in um in the 1940s, the monarchy actually wasn't very strong at that point. No, right? no, no. I mean, and and, and, and also the fed, the family fortune wasn't. No, yeah, it wasn't fabulously wealthy in the 1940s, correct? Exactly. Uh, they were at the brink of collapse. So the 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 power of the monarchy that we have seen from then until now, it really came down to one man, and that is King Kumikon Aduyadev. So who, as you yourself said, you know, came to power in 1946 accidentally. Uh, I would not go into much detail because this is another big issue. Yeah, that's because, yeah. That's a that's a whole exactly the issue around what happened to the previous. Anyway, year. I have I have a book coming out uh, on this subject. You know, toward the oh. end of this year. 
Okay. Uh, maybe you can invite me back sometime <laughs> later. Okay. Yes. But 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 it's just enough to say that uh because of that uh accident, you know, his uh brother king king brother was shot in the head. So Kumipon became an accident accidental king in 1946. But then it took him about a decade in order to sort of stand up and 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 then start to realize that oh yeah you know there's a lot of there's a lot of things that king could do when it comes to Uh, re-strengthening the position of the monarchy, and we started to see from around 1959 onwards, you know, the rise of the monarchy in the political domain. Uh, the king uh, started to work with military strongmen, and back then, you know, we have this field marshal Salit Tanarat. That's a few things that they that they did in order to bring back the glorious days of the monarchy. And one of the thing basically, they launched an, a neo loyalist campaign uh, in order to Elevate King Puyipon to be sacred, to be popular, and to be democratic. So, to be democratic, basically, this is to give way for for Puyipon to intervene in the political process occasionally, <clears throat> and always <clears throat> his intervention, his intervention, quite often ending a political conflict, political deadlock, to the point that he has been ex had been extolled as a stabilizing force in Thai politics. Right, and this the development of this alliance between uh, the monarchy and the uh, the army leadership happens in the 1950s, grows in the 60s and 70s. This is in the context of Cold War Southeast Asia, where the, the United States wants to cultivate anti-communist strongmen, be it be it Marcos, be it Lan Nol, be it uh, Suharto, correct? And this is so th this fit the pattern there that there is a. Not not to deny Thai agency in this uh, issue, but there's also, at the time of the the American the growing American war in Vietnam, there's money coming in. There's there's support for the military in an anti-communist bloc. Correct. Well, yes, correct. My, <clears throat> uh, you would not you would not be able to talk about the rise of the two political prominence of the monarchy without the role of the United States. I mean, they they all came together. Uh, we we can say that they. Here there were three major actors here: Thai monarchy, Thai military, and United States. And the Cold War provided uh, a useful context, you know, for these kind of alliance to blossom. Uh, the military rely on the monarchy. Likewise, the monarchy rely on the military. And basically, they use uh, the discourse of national in uh, sorry national security, you know, in order to build up this alliance. The monarchy has been made equal to. National security. So, for the military to defend the monarchy was equal to defending the nation itself. And what would be the threat to the monarchy and the nation? Communism. That when the United States came in, and as we know, the United States, you know, that they're not always here you know, to promote democracy. In fact, they would promote any regime uh, that would sort of uh, give back the political benefit, you know, to the to the American administration. And by working with the Thai monarchy and the military, impending the image of the communist served everyone well, you know, in this kind of alliance. Just very briefly, internally, we we think we're talking about communists in the form of Communist Party of Thailand, in the form of leftist student at Thammasat University. So that's why there was a the, the tragic event at Thammasat in the 1970s twice. Externally, the United States, you know, used Indochina, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia 
to be sort of the face of enemy that would give legit- legitimacy to the despotic regimes in Thailand. So every come, everything come together right until the end of the Cold War. So let, let's fast forward to the 1990s, and um, the, the Thai economy is, is doing fairly well in the early 1990s. It's one of these sort of economic miracle moments. And then the Southeast Asian economic crash hits, and it, it really starts with Thailand and famously spreads to Indonesia and leads to the fall of Suharto. And then one of the consequences of that economic disruption is the rise of um, uh, Thaksin and his Thai Rock Thai party, correct, in, in the 2001 elections? Yes. Well, uh, the, the financial crisis, again, provided a, a useful backdrop to understand Thai politics in the subsequent decade. Uh, I mean, 1990 ended, you know, quite positively toward democratization process, even though at the beginning of the 1990s, we had military coup, we had uh, bloodshed, crackdown on Thai protesters in 1992. But after that, you know, this was the period when we started to see uh, the, the growing democratization ending with uh, the constitution of 1997. 1997. Today, we still consider that constitution the most democratic of all time. 97. In 1999, mm-hmm. yes, correct. But it had been thrown away, of course. Uh, but that, that uh, constitution of 1997, 1997 paved the way for taxing. Uh, to walk into Thai politics and then uh, riding on the, the the possibility of democracy, Thaksin somehow won election in 2001, landslide election uh, on the uh, impressive populist policies. So he transformed the marginalized uh, north and the northeast region. Uh, these are the, the most uh, poorest region of Thailand, you know, into his so best. Isan. Isan, yes. and northeast, and then and also further north, and that's True. is he, he's from the north, isn't he? Is he from Chiang Mai area? He's from Chiang Mai, yes. He's from yeah. the north, and and of course, uh, an even poorer region uh, is Isan or northeast. So Thaksin had this in mind that in order to win majority, uh, through the electoral process, if you if you could win hearts and minds of the marginalized marginalized people, the north and northeast. They, I mean, the, the eligible voters combined happen to, to be the majority anyway. So if you could win that, then you win everything. And Thaksin was right. So, so what, yeah. what were some of his populist policies? Uh, famously, there was the, the healthcare clinics where for um, 30 baht or something, you could, you could see a doctor, correct? Yes, true. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of policy coming out of the the populist uh, project of Taksim. One of them, the universal health care. But I think to sum things up, I think it's better to put it this way. I think he offer those marginalized you know, residents a kind of political and economic belongings, you know, through the electoral process. So I think for the first time, uh, the the rural, rural resident felt that you know they could control their own fate and also. They can they can lay their trust, you know, in a political party. It means that, you know, you know that if you vote for this party, you will get something back. This is something that quite unusual, yeah. you know, in, in, in type of context. In in your book, Cooking uh, Crisis, that we're talking about, it's uh, theorized as um, uh, a struggle for recognition. Correct. That um, yes, definitely. That to, to make to make the rural northeast visible, um, this you know the ethnically distinct. Um, uh, region that you know has a lot of poverty, and then 
if if those folks are in Bangkok or in the tourist industry in the further, further south, works are the lowest level jobs. You know, they're sort of the uh, the bottom of the economic ladder. But this was this was a way for them to have a political voice or at least to to be seen, correct? Definitely. And Federico Ferrara, who wrote that chapter, explained really well of the, I mean, uh, the, the idea of uh, the problem, the problem with struggle for recognition. So I think these people, they felt that no matter how, how much they work toward uh, the, the Thai economy, they would never be recognized, right? Because, uh, because they know that for them, for them to be recognized, they have to step up into becoming uh, a higher, a higher class. I'm not talking about high, high class, but you know they have to jump from lower class into a sort of middle class. You know, this is again political, political sign one oh one. You know, once yeah. once you read, um, once you read, you know that position of being a middle class. You know, then you start to see uh, democracy at play. But and Thaksin wanted to to make things happen. Middle class in Bangkok felt uneasy about it because then. You know, if, if these people, marginalized people, manage to climb up the ladder to becoming uh, equal and equal middle class, it will become too crowded for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and is, is there is there yeah. a bit of ethnic or regional resentment as well? I mean, the 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 central tie is different from Isan. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the, the the struggle for recognition is not just about economic uh, recognition. Uh, but it's also going to political ethnicity, uh, where you are from, what you representing. You know, to say that Thai people are, you know, one of the most racist people on the planet. Then I would agree with that uh, statement as well. Uh, especially uh, middle class, you know, Bangkokian, they have certain perception about uh, what supposed to be Thai, what's supposed to be rep- representation. Of politics, and unfortunately, those from a marginalized region they have not been recognized as one of, you know, uh, those who representing Thailand. So, so what? Just to circle back, what is what is Toxin uh, Toxin Shinawatra's sin? Then is it um, is it uh, sharing the wealth with the lower classes? Is it giving voice to the excluded? I mean, it, it's it, this is all very ironic because he's a he's a made yeah. billions in the telecom industry. I mean, he's not a, a poor rice farmer himself. Yeah, I mean, it's quite ironic, but I mean, among, you know, the worst policies of Thaksin, we, we can talk about, you know, horrible policy of Thaksin, the South, and also uh, war on drugs. What yeah, the, the, rep- the repression in the Muslim South and the, and the brutal war on drugs, which in many ways prefigured uh, Duterte, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we lend the, the, the pattern and platform, you know, for Duterte, of you know 2020 2021 you know the philippines sort of following the footsteps of toxin but if you put that aside you know there's some credit to be given to toxin and as i said you know in order to they try toxin try uh try to lift you know try to elevate you know the the livelihood of uh, the north and the northeast you know so that uh they could be able to control their own political and economic fate and that thing i must say toxin uh, was very successful uh, he was so successful that he won second election in 2005 and even bigger landslide than 2001, making him the only prime minister after, you know, 1932 to be able to serve a full four-year term. This is incredible. I mean, in yeah. terms of statistics, it's already incredible. 
and, and he's winning with a bigger landslide the second time in 2000. Yeah. So That's how, why. So how right are they able to be? How were they able to launch a coup on him with that kind of popularity? Because he became so popular that he started to scare uh, the network monarchy. You know, uh, we have not talked about the network monarchy, but uh, this is network basically putting the monarchy at the center, supported by key non-elective institutions, military judges, big businesses, including you know Bangkok middle class and also royalists. So they started to feel, as I said at the beginning, the competition from the marginalized, marginalized uh, region. So that's why the, the success of Taksim in 2005 was really uh, a wake-up call you know, for the, the political elite that maybe Taksim has to be eliminated because he had become too popular. So the anti-Taksim protest started almost right after Taksim winning the election in 2006. Uh, sorry, 2005. And I, you know, I, I remember this as uh, actually before I'd actually uh, been to Southeast Asia many, many times in the past 30 years, but it had not been to Thailand. And, but I was on my way to Cambodia yeah. in 2005 and had one of these awful flights where I got into the to Bangkok at uh, at one in the morning and had to fly to Phnom Penh at, uh, at six in the morning. And so I just had to sleep in the airport. I was trying to find a, a newspaper to put over my eyes. And it was a local paper talking about the possibility of this coup coming and yeah. it was i was the first i'd heard of this and, and really by chance but but so so he so he's overthrown in 2006 uh there's a junta in charge but then democracy is re-established re an election is held and who wins the next election well I'm, I'm, i have to say that after the coup 2006 thailand you know had never been the same yeah. uh i mean if you really, if you really want to talk about, you know, the beginning of the of the deep crisis in Thailand, then maybe we should start at two thousand and six, because yeah. what we have seen afterward was not nothing but, but nothing, nothing, nothing really about democracy. Mm. Uh, after Thaksin, uh, the network monarchy placed a military man, uh, General Suryutulanon, to serve as prime minister, uh, and he stayed in power for about or just a little bit over a year. Now, little, little did they know that they would not be able to get rid of Taksin because Taksin influence was also much entrenched. So just, just for them to remove Taksin from power, they quickly believed that they were able to get, it, get rid of Taksin. So that's why they were confident to organize a new election by late uh, 2007 and then Taksin proxy won an election. So that would be another slap in the face of the Thai elite. Is that when his sister won? No, not yet. No, not so, yet. Yeah. No, not but yet. A, but, not a, yet. A, but a proxy. Proxy. 2000, that then led to another crisis, deep, deep crisis in 2008, when two proxy of Taksin were also eliminated, you know, through the intervention of the court. Again, this, this would be a new chapter in Thailand. When so we started, a judicial coup. Exactly. When we yeah. started to discuss uh, the impact of the judicial coup. And then, and then, I mean, not, not to mention that a minute war with Cambodia over the Pierre Vivier temple in the middle, mm -hmm. in the middle of 2008. The, 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 the crisis and the conflict with Cambodia was politicized for the purpose of Thailand domestic politics. Yes, I, was, I actually visited uh, Vivier uh, uh, a year and a half ago with uh, uh, the Cambodian archaeologists and they, they when we talked yeah, about I mean, that, they said, oh, well, when there's political trouble in Thailand, that's when we get nervous over here. 
oh, definitely. I visited, you know, just only uh, a year after that war. I have to say the term war because there's a large number of casualties and death. Yeah, the soldiers, know. it's the sold, rank and file soldiers that suffer. Yeah. Yeah. And then this become a stain, you know, in ASEAN because ASEAN like to claim that after, you know, so many years without the constitution, until until there was ASEAN Charter, you know, in 2007 or 8, something like that, you know, uh, there had no been major war among members. But here we go, we have a mini war here between Thailand and Cambodia. Yeah. So so then when, what, what year was uh, Yingluk uh, uh, Thaksin's sister uh, elected? 2011. 2011. Yep. And then she governs until... 2014, 2014, which is yeah. the, the coup in the title of this book. So, what what happens in 2014? Uh, Ying Lak was very popular. She came out of nowhere. People know that you know she was sister, younger sister of Thaksin, but otherwise we knew little apart from being a successful CEO, you know, of a telecom company. But then over time, after 2011, she had proven to be a very charming. Prime Minister, I'm not saying capable. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying that she is she was not capable, you know. But she has certain charm, you know. She that has, she has charisma. Charisma, exactly. Yeah. And then and then Southeast Southeast Asian politics, you know. <laughs> One thing you know is also based on charisma, you know, and leadership. Yeah, that's and, the charisma play and superficial things play no role in American politics. <laughs> We're very much about policy. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, yeah, uh, but 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 that is just that is a, that is secondary. Yeah. What's what secondary was uh, Ying Lak's uh, sort of leadership and charisma. That was secondary. What was primary was we were approaching the looming end of the Pumipon era, because King Pumipon, you know, as sitting on top of the political structure, right within the network monarchy, he was hospitalized from two thousand and nine. And after that, in and out, in and out hospital, that started to bring up a sense of anxiety among the political elite. They started to wonder, you know, you know, should Puipon, uh not be here? Whether their political interest would be would be defended and by whom? Whether they can trust the new king? But so there, I there think, was a, I think, there was a clear successor that was de- designated. There was no surprise in succession. What's the what's the problem with the? With the heir apparent, with his son, the problem is that exactly because there, <laughs> exactly because there no, there's no other alternative, mm-hmm. you know, a, apart from this unpopular crown prince. That's why they became even more nervous and anxious, and especially the rumor that you know the the incoming king, uh, was too close to Taksin, mm-hmm. so they fear that you know had Ying Lak and Taksin been in power during this critical transition. Uh, the network monarchy, the military, the judges, they would lose all the political benefits, you know, to taxing. I think they in their mind, it, it seemed, it seemed to be operated, you know, the mindset seemed to be operated on the basis of the winner takes all, zero sum game. So they, they fear that should taxing be here during the transition and taxing, if taxing would take taxing, taxing would take all. And there's nothing left for, other stakeholders. So because of that, they strove to control royal succession. And when I said that 
the coup 2014 was plotted. I think this has been a long plot for them. You know, from the moment that Ying Lap came to power in 2011, and her popularity was basically non-stop, right? Mm-hmm. And then maybe it's time to eliminate her. And then when she was overthrown, you know, in 2014, that, that was during the period that Pumipon was seriously sick, you know, bedridden. Right. And two years later, we know that he passed away. Yeah, so, so he, he passes away in 2016? October, yes. October 2016. And then that starts the, um, this process in the, in the book. Or, well, maybe when you use the term interregnum, which, which you, you draw, use the term from Gramsci, correct? Yes. This, yes. this, uh, this famous quote about the, the I, I forget the exact quote, but uh, the, the old isn't quite dead, but the, the, the new isn't quite born yet. We're in this, this complicated space between these two. And that's, that's how you theorize these years, really from 20, say, 2011 to 2019. Yeah, that served as an as a, as important uh, framework for, for this book, The Interregnum. Uh, the old has already died. The new one has, uh, has yet to be born. That's so, yeah, that's the quote. Yeah, Sorry, that, that, forgive that, that, me. <laughs> no, no worries. I mean, I mean, he's long dead, you know, 100 years ago. So, <laughs> I'm talking about Gramsci. So, uh, <laughs> so exactly, you know, what, whatever we, we saw during the Pumipon era that had been so successful, you know, when the monarchy served as the stability, political stability, that system had, has, had died. It was dead. Yet at the same time, we not, we came out of the Pumipon era, but yet we have nothing else because the democratic process, the, the democratic institution that taps in. And now, uh, the future forward party wanted to set it up in the post Pumipon era have not yet been successful. So we are in this period of not knowing the unknown period. That's why during this unknown period, whatever had been swept underneath the carpet started to come out so in the section three we look the the book looks at several of the institutions um uh military rule militarized monarchy the, the khakistocracy the courts and also the sangha uh the buddhist monks could you say a few words on that well i mean when when i started uh to sort of frame this book i i i wanted to uh, bring about you know key issue uh, that has sort of represented the crisis during this interregnum. And I came up with the problem with the military, with the judiciary, with the economy, and also uh, foreign affairs. And one of the things is basically crisis in the Sangha, or basically uh, the Buddhist uh, monastic uh, order. You know, during this period, uh, there's a lot of uh, competition, power struggle within major Buddhist sect of Thailand. Now, mm-hmm. it has become an issue because you know, under the, the, the patronage of uh, the monarchy, you know, Bud- Buddhist or the key Buddhist uh, sect sort of has to follow, you know, what, what the monarchy uh, come up with a kind of religious Buddhist order. I, I try not to make it too complicated. But the highlight here is that without Pumipon, as that source of stability, not just only in politics, but also stability in uh, Buddhism, Without Pumipon, you started to see conflict among major sects. Among the different Buddhist sects. The, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then this chapter picked up uh, Tamachiyo, which is a very popular uh, Buddhist sect, you know, to, to talk about 
the crisis that emerged from the absence of the Pumipon influence. So this is to demonstrate that you know the end of the previous era, the end of the old regime, bring about new crisis, and we don't even know how to handle uh, the, the the conflict with the Sangha, and it it has been left unattended, unresolved, because with the Tamashio, you know, uh, the, the the head of the sect sort of ran away. Right, there's a you know, there's a military raid. So, well, raid several, several raids, right? And so drama, so dramatic. But at yeah. the end, we got nothing out of it. You know, we did not really talk about the reform of this key Buddhist sect. We don't even know where the leader of the sect is right now. So I mean, is is he st- is he still in hiding? I mean, it's been yeah. over a, over a year, right? More than that, you know, yeah. he he still has been in hiding. So, uh, so I think this chapter, you know, demonstrated really well, uh, the. The, the discourse of interregnum, especially you know whatever we seen in 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 the Buddhist faith among uh, the majority of Thai who are Buddhists, right? And in the as as Gramsci said, and you corrected me, the the new has not been born yet. We're still seeing how this will work out, and yeah. uh, and same with the the courts. Um, the um the fourth and final section looks at the the opposition to the junta. Um, and there's essays on trials, freedom of speech, and on the internet and self censorship, and also the the co option of some of the NGOs. Um, what what are some of the most important here is in ter- most important issues here in terms of the um, uh, attempts at opposition to the junta? Okay, briefly, uh, this section deals with uh, a persistent culture of impunity. Uh, culture of impunity is is a big thing. It's a big uh, debate uh, in Thailand. You know uh, the state use of violent violence against the people. You know from the 1970s at Kamasa, 1992 the Black May, and then 2010 against the red shirt. No one has been brought to justice. And I think Tyrell Habergon, you know from Wisconsin Medicine, uh, deal with the issue of the junta after 2014 and the junta attempting to use the same uh same tactic of employing violence in order to uh, suppress dis- dissent voices. So this chapter is about, uh, we talk about, you know, the, 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 the culture of impunity, including uh, uh, by the restrictors, also very interesting on the new culture of self-censorship and the incompetent uh, civil society, you know, the last chapter. So while some of these uh, troubles predated the interregnum, I have to say that the issue with NGO, for example, you know, it, it did not just happen during the interregnum. We have this problem long before, but they were exacerbated, you know, during the transitional period. And it ex- ex- the accelerated too. Exactly. exactly. Right, under the uh, under the coup. Yeah. Yeah. And in in, in this chapter, I, what I was struck with is like so many similarities to just across the border in Cambodia under Hun Sen, or to some aspects of Indonesian politics. Um, and in in your chapter on um, foreign policy under the under the junta, um, you 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 talk about the the alignment. There's uh, uh, Thailand and China, um, and sort of an, an alignment of authoritarianism, but also um, some sort of authoritarian solidarity with uh, uh, Burma, Myanmar, and also with uh, Cambodia. Could you say a few words on that chapter? Well, this is a very scary uh, trend in Southeast Asia. Uh, when I, I used I use this term in my chapter, illiberal forces, 
in Southeast Asia. Uh, start yeah, Ill- to, illiberal forces in Southeast Asia. Yep, yep, yep. liberal uh, forces in Southeast Asia started to come together and and form an unofficial loose uh, consortium. You know, <laughs> I want to mm-hmm. use that word. Uh, basically, these regime semi democratic, semi authoritarian, uh, giving each other, you know, legitimacy, recognition. So that it would also give them, you know, confidence in dealing with uh, opposition in their own party in a ruthless way, knowing that you know, even if you do that to your own people, there would not be a kind of contract contest coming out from your neighboring country. And in this case, you know, you can talk about ASEAN as well. So uh, for me, I think uh, the the cooperation between Thailand, Myanmar, Cambodia, and on top of that, we have China created, I call, a large hole in Southeast Asia, uh, damaging democratization process, which ASEAN has claimed to champion since uh, the establishment of the, uh, the ASEAN community. Right, right. And, uh, and uh, recently I interviewed um, Sebastian Strongio on his, uh, his book on uh, China and Southeast Asia, and, and he details the way in which, uh, for example, the Chinese um, uh, intelligence helps uh, Hun Sen regime uh, track down social people on social media and so forth. So they well. I mean, Thailand doing the same thing with China yeah. too, right? right? Sending sending a Uku uh, refugee back, you know, to be prosecuted in in China. So that's why I have been warned not to travel to China because I could be sent back, you know, to Thailand. You could be uh, seized and expatriated yeah, from there. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're talking about a Sebastian. You know, he's he's a good friend of mine too, and mm-hmm. then. Uh, just a mini promotion that we are reviewing that book of him and to be a feature in Yotori Wusel is actually very soon. Oh, good, good, good. I'll look forward to that issue. <laughs> I, I had a wonderful conversation with him. I thought he was fabulous. Great. Yeah. 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 Well, th- thank you so much. You've been really generous with your time. But before I let you go, I've got just two more questions. Um, can you suggest two books uh, for the audience to read? Yes, as a, as a Thai scholar, so mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I picked two books on Thailand. So okay, I hope wonderful. That, <laughs> yeah, I hope that, you know, read, uh, listener might not think that I'm a bit too narrow-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one, uh, I mean, in fact, two of them recently released, and the first one in particular, I really like it by a younger Thai scholar. And this book called Royal Cap- Capitalism, Wealth, Class, and Monarchy in Thailand by Ajahn Puongchon Utchanam. So very briefly, uh, this book uh, examines the hegemonic status of the monarchy. Uh, it, focus, it focuses on uh, dominance as a cutthroat capitalist. You know, it's also argued that the constant reinvention of the Thai monarchy was its remarkable asset, you know, that powerfully shaped the political and, econ- poli- poli- political and economic uh, structure of Thailand. So in short, this book deals with the wealth of the Thai monarchy, you know, unfortunately, we do not have time to talk about the yeah, top of the role. Well, well in, right. in, there, there's, there's great information in Kuking Crisis on that. Exactly. And, yep. and yep. for those who aren't familiar with this, the the holdings of the monarchy. And is, yep. it, what is, it, is it the um, Crown Property Bureau? Yes, the, the, Crown, the Crown Property Bureau, yes. just astounding. I mean, the, the amount of wealth. Is wow, yeah. Let me, which let is me e- even more shocking if you know the history that in in 1945-46, the monarchy was almost broke. 
true. And then yeah. becomes in, this incredibly powerful force in yeah. the second half of the 20th century. Well, just just one last just one last sentence to finish off this book. Yeah. That the the well had made the current king and in fact his father the most the richest monarch on the planet yeah. with a, a, a net uh, worth of up to 60 billion US dollars. That's going to prove that this is really a true, as, as he himself said, cutthroat capitalist. And yeah. that, that's more, more than the Sultanate of Brunei. Yes, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh my God, okay. you know, yeah. uncomparable. No, you can't. Okay. You can't. The other book, you know, by yes. uh, a well-known professor at Cornell, uh, Ajahn Tak Shalom Tirana, and then uh, his book is Read Till It Chatters, Nationalism and Identity in Modern Thai Literature. This is, some, this is also an issue that is close to my heart because uh, I was doing my PhD on a sort of Thai national identity on Thai foreign policy. So this book uh, asks, what is Thai identity in the age of modernity? So in itself, is I mean the 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 question is already very uh, interesting. So uh, just ask you know what really Thai and how and how Thainess could live with modernity of the twenty first century. And what's the title one more time? Read till it chatters: mm -hmm. Nationalism and Identity in Modern Thai Literature, published by ANU Press in two thousand eight. Okay, we'll look look forward to those two. And then finally, what are you working on now, and hope? Uh, what can we hope to see from you next? Well, my life seems not to be not to be able to run away from the monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> that always put me in trouble. So <laughs> I have I have two current projects uh, involving the monarchy, and I'm so excited. One is another ed edited volume coming its way. Uh, <laughs> I will make sure that I will not submit it to NUS Press. <laughs> so <laughs> this book is about King Wajalongkorn Rama. X or Rama 10. Mm -hmm. This would be an essay of 10 scholars from various aspects of the current king. You know, from uh, a biography of the king, from uh, Kingdom of Fear, from uh, his reputation overseas, you know, from his relationship with the military, you know, from the Club of Tibi Ro also, uh, and including uh, his wife, Puro, wife's Wives, something yes, like yes, yeah. yes. Okay, I mean, basically, this this would be a lot of aspect of the current reign in Thailand. Yeah, the other it's, project. Yeah, it's, yes. a, it's a fascinating, fascinating topic. Which, which in in this current book, Ku King Crisis, there is quite a bit on him, which we didn't have time to get to. But it's definitely yes. wow. It is it is some very intense and complicated uh, issues that come up. Shall we say? The other one is uh the Thai monarchy and the United States. Mm. And I have I have completed you know uh, my my field work at Nara in uh, Maryland uh, just before COVID, and I got all the documents. So this would trace the relationship with the Thai monarchy in particular and United States from 1823. That when, if I'm not <laughs> mistaken, I'm sorry, that that would be the year that uh, we signed uh, the, the the treaty between the two country kingdoms. Mm and making us the oldest allies of the United States. So the gist of this book would be how the U.S. You know, play a role in the, in, in, in the maintenance of the monarchy in Thailand from the 19th century until the 21st century. I, I am excited to read that. I, that, that um, you know, I, I recently read the book, uh, the newer book on the, um, 
Cold War, American Cold War policies and Buddhism in Thailand, and um, just the the way in which uh, the United States supports the monarchy in the Cold War. So this that sounds fascinating. I look forward to that. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time. Um, and um, maybe we'll get you back on here and, and talk about the next book in a few months. <laughs> Hopefully, it's <So>. out. <laughs> so thank you again. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This has been a conversation with uh, Pavan Chapao-Pompong about his edited volume, Ku King Crisis, A Critical Interregnum, out in 2021 with Yale Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode in New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>